Masonic history, obviously a token and staple of this show, but also a very important aspect to remembering and archiving and preserving and appreciating what we do as Freemasons and understanding where it came from and even where it's going to go. So what if not just in our lodges, but our grand jurisdictions, we had laws in place that dictated not only how that history is kept, but also how it's archived to access for years to come. We've got an interesting talk on that tonight. We're going to cover all that and more with a special guest right after this on Historical Light. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Historical Light. Uh, I'm Alex Powers, your host, as always. I'm past master of Gardner Lodge here in the Grand Jurisdiction of Kansas. We have our co-host back with us this evening. Robert, I'll hand it over to you. Greetings. Glad to be uh, back with you tonight and uh, excited about our guest as we share um a path of our Masonic journeys. Fantastic. And we are very, very happy to have with us Brother Joe Wages this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Brother, if you don't mind, I'll hand it over to you for their introduction. Oh, well, thank you, guys. I, I really uh, appreciate the invitation this evening. And I've got to say, the bumper music, it sounds exactly like like uh, Stranger Things or something. I was like, do, 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 like rocking out in the background. It was pretty good. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, man, thanks so much for coming on this evening. Uh, really, really looking forward to getting into the uh, this topic. This 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 is something that's you know everyone that keeps track of me and what I do knows that this is kind of my passion. Uh, I'm always trying to digitize and preserve these records before they uh, disappear from us. Uh, as you of all people can definitely appreciate with your work that uh, want to get into here very quickly, but. Uh, I think it's an interesting topic to have, and I, I'm hoping that we uh, we can really flesh out and see what that would look like to place laws into that. Before we get too much into that topic, though, I do want to give everyone with us this joining us this evening, first, a thank you for joining us, but also a chance to join the team here with Historical Light and help us continue and grow with what we do. Uh, you can go to our website, historicallight.com slash support, and you can support the show through Patreon viewers like you that keep the show going we appreciate each and every one of you so check us out historicallight.com slash support and uh, support the show become part of the team brother wages so we ask a few questions kind of as a primer before we get into our our big topics but one of those that we want to learn about you is what got you into freemasonry do you have family history or what was it that really sealed that connection for you it's a couple of different things. So family history, obviously, right? Like there's a, you know, there's kind of a path to go on already. But the main thing for me was like when I was like a teenager, like I grew up and I was reading like the the early heritage, right? Like, so like, you know, the first few volumes of it. And like when I started reading that stuff, I was like, this is what I want to do for a living. 
But my dad was like, well, I think that's more of a hobby, really. But I, I, I was going to show him. So I went to college and I started out doing uh, a history degree. And then like after like the first semester, he's like, hey, let's let's have a talk. And I was like, OK, well, what's going on? He goes, well, do you want to be able to support a family and maybe have like, uh, you know, some kind of gainful employment? Well, yeah, that sounds good. Well, then maybe you change your major. And so I went the engineering path. Right. But so like for me, history was always like a hobby and not that it wasn't a major passion. It is. But for like what I was trying to do. Um, it was kind of like a side thing, but that's cool because, um, I've got a good career now and I can also do this as like a, as a hobby. And it's actually like, it's the best of both worlds because there's a lot of guys, you know, they'll get to like some kind of grand lodge level position, right. And their passion may be history, but with all their duties that they're like entitled to do for the grand lodge or even like, like take art to Hoyos, right? Like if all the stuff that he had to do for like the Supreme council or all the different research requests and things like that, I mean, the guy gets like beat up all day long, but if he could even spend like half as much time doing the fun stuff that me and him like to do, like, you know, the world would be a better place and we'd have more research done. Right. And so it's, it's kind of one of those things where like, I'm not tied up to, I don't have any obligations that keep me from being able to perform the work. And really that's a, that's a, that's an awesome position to be in because I don't have anyone to tell me what to do, whenever, what to do, however, what to do it. And then I have no constraints. Right. And so that's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place to be. And so I can really focus on the research that I want to do. And that's kind of what got me into Freemasonry. We seem to be experiencing technical difficulties. Brother Alex will be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Very odd, like your screen glitched and then the microphone slipped. That's okay. Do you want me to riff on for a minute? <laughs> Wait for it. Hmm. It's totally muted. If you hopped out and hopped back in, could it work? Wonder if he knows sign language. That's right. I think he told me to steal third base. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't steal third. That was totally wrong. <laughs> while, while we wait for uh, Alex to figure out his audio, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine, brother. I will relate an anecdote I uh, have that I experienced uh, with with you, Joe. Uh, it's one of my favorite Masonic stories just for the uh, the sheer no. uh, brilliance you had in the moment uh, as far as uh, making a joke. Uh -oh. uh, so for those who don't know, uh, uh, Brother Joe here, is, he, he truly is a Masonic scholar. He's talking about being a historian as a hobby, but he has truly uh, uh, advanced uh, what we know about Masonic history as well as any professional scholar ever could hope to do, uh, even if it is his hobby. and. Uh, in that light, I was at a, a Masonic event uh, where Joe spoke about his uh, one of his areas of expertise, that being uh, the, the Bavarian Illuminati uh, of the late 18th century. And uh, he gave a really great uh, presentation, uh, kind of sharing what we what we can and can't know about that Illuminati. And uh, you may recognize Joe from uh, a film he was in about it. Um, and it, it was it was well received. The audience seemed pretty jazzed up about what they'd heard. 
and afterwards, uh, Joe and I were walking out and we got into the elevator to head down to a different part of the convention. And uh, while we did, a few uh, more seasoned uh, Masons happened to get in the elevator at the same time. And uh, uh, there was kind of uh, an awkward tension that I remember kind of wondering, huh, what's this about? And then Joe uh, uh, said, well, who wants to join the Illuminati? <laughs> <laughs> and those, those older brothers all kind of backed up against the wall of the elevator. Of course, they couldn't get anywhere because we're all in an elevator before they realized he was joking and started yeah. laughing, too. Uh, uh, but kind of a, a, a funny uh, example there of the difference that's, that's a, a, a difference that uh, you can see and, and trace happening uh, but between two different Masonic generations right now on certain kinds of topics that were considered taboo or uh, uh, not allowed or or even just uh, a little sketchy due to different things, say, 30, 40 years ago that aren't mm -hmm. really uh, uh, as much of a concern as they are now. Uh, but it, it was pretty funny. It was, it was perfectly timed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, th I thought I would crash the elevator just at how hard I was laughing. It was fantastic. That's hilarious. I like you guys able to hear me now? I'm sorry. Yeah, I heard you. Yeah. Hey, fantastic. Just don't touch anything, right? Yeah. Just don't change those cameras again. They're just gonna, we're going to stay the good thing. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, so to kind of jump into the topic tonight of Masonic history and looking at the aspect of having laws around it. First of all, what are your guys' opinions on this? Uh, Brother Rob, let, let's start with you. What, what, what do you think about having laws dictating how Masonic history is kept and archived on a Grand Lodge level, I should say? It might just be me, but your audio sounds like uh, Optimus Prime is dying a slow death while you're talking. I'll translate. He says, How, what are your feelings and opinions on uh, Grand Lodge laws for concerning the preservation of Masonic history? And go. <laughs> I, yeah. Like I said, it might just be me. I think it's the gremlins again. <laughs> I think Anyways, well, Brother Joe, let's let's uh, jump to you on it. What what are your opinions? First off, you have a vast history and some really deep research uh, mm -hmm. that has you know amazed us all. You probably know better than anyone that aspect of some of the stuff you come by by chance. Some of the stuff has just disappeared, and you're not able to get your hands on it because it wasn't kept properly or wasn't kept at all. What are your opinions on this? Is this something we should look into today? Is it too late? Mm -hmm. Kind of what are your thoughts? It's never too late. And like one of the things I wanted to talk to you guys about is so there's a, a for my for my thesis, I want to I want to write it on because I'm, I'm going to get my Ph.D. through the University of Erfurt. So I've decided. Um, and so for my thesis, what I want to write it on is the genealogy of Freemasonry. Right. And so one of the things that we need, um, we don't necessarily need like fine detail. We just need metadata. Right. To really show. Um, where systems come from, how they spread, where they go to, where they're connected to, and that kind of stuff, right? Because once we have the metadata, all the little fine details as far as like members, years, dates, and that kind of stuff, we can fill that stuff in. But the first thing that yeah. we need for all of this is like a structure for like the actual metadata of Freemasonry. 
And so for like proof of concept, I've been working on French lodges in the Caribbean. I've done, uh, well, they already, really the guys like on the airport team already did the Illuminati system, but I did the entire strict observance uh, group as well. And I, I ripped it off of a list and it's all these uh, inner order members. And what we did was we took this data and it's just, it's metadata, right? Um, but also we took other metadata where it's plugged into the German national biographical database and through cross-referencing these things, we can, we can show all the duplicate members that are possibly right and work out the differences between them. If these are the same people or not, but kind of taking this approach with that fat grid, um, I did the same thing for Texas too. And so I wrote to the grand secretary and this is why I encourage like every brother in every state, you know, Alex, you can do this in Kansas, right? Write the grand secretary, say, I want to list of all active lodges, if they have it with the founding dates, great. Uh, if not, that's okay. You can do a little legwork. It's going to be fine. Um, and then go get a list of all the demised lodges, right? And however they demise. And so what, what I did with Texas was I wrote uh, our secretary. And so I got demised lodges. And the demised lodges have dates they were founded, dates they, they demised, basically. Put that into one table. Then I grabbed all the lodges and then I did it by city too. And so the weird thing about that grid that one of the weaknesses is that like ghost towns and things like that, it can't account for this stuff because it's working off like a German backbone, right? So it's got major U.S. cities, even small U.S. cities, but ghost towns, like you're going to have to fill in that data. But the cool thing is though, is like for missing data set through filtering, you can pull that kind of stuff out, right? And so what you end up with is like a working list, right? So you just go and work through it, boom, and it disappears. Work through it, it disappears. Mm. And then, so what I'm getting at is in every grand lodge, we can build our metadata first because that's the main thing that we need. And one of the cool things with that fat grid deal is we can show like an animated map, right? Like here's the history of Kansas from the date it was uh, brought into the union as a state, the founding of the grand lodge and do a year by year thing and, sh and show these little lights pop up on the map. And then they can go black as they demise or something like this, make an animation. And what we could have is we could have an accurate picture of where these lodges popped up. Why did they pop up where they popped up? Was it because they were located near a major town? Was it a railway, railway hub? Is it a agricultural community? And then we can start answering all these sociological questions. But what the first thing we have to have is that metadata. So like probably like if we were to do like one major organizing thing, we could grab metadata for all the grand lodges and it's information probably every one of our grand secretaries has. Um, and if you can just get that stuff, like we can load it into fat grid. And I'll teach you guys how to do this stuff, you know, that, that kind of thing. But that's really, I think, if we did something like that and we had like that metadata for every lodge, right? So then as brothers go and they do the work on their lodge, like say they're taking pictures of the records or they're making an inventory of all the things they have in their library, whatever it could be, attach it to FatGrid. And now that meta metadata now has data for other people to use. And then, then we can take it to the next level, like guys like me and Robert, um, we like to go take a bunch of photographs of a bunch of old paper and, and, and uh, not hang out with people all day long. <laughs> that, those guys, like, you know, now we've got a working list of what to go through. And if we have a catalog of all the inventories of the lodges and it's open source like this, we can probably also find some rare things that we don't know where they're at. You know what I'm saying? Or things that we don't even know about. I mean, that's what's so cool about this whole thing is like it, it can be as simple or as detailed as you want it to be. But um, I think really what it is and what we're building for the future is open source history, right? Now, obviously, that there comes caveats, right? Like things the Grand Lodge could rule against. So one of the things is you don't want to keep like member records any like recent than 100 years, right? Because there's a slim chance there could be a living member whose records are out there. And not that there's anything 
to, to hide necessarily, but for, you know, for privacy and so forth, we have to respect those brothers uh, and their families, right? Like to not have living members details, you know, out in the public, just even for identity fraud and those kind of purposes. But that's, I mean, as far as that goes, I think that's like our main constraints. And the thing is like, do we necessarily need an edict from Grand Lodge that says that we can take an inventory of the things already in our possession? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's gotta be a rule somewhere about it, but <laughs> But I'm, yeah, just, I'm, yeah. I'm showing you like the framework for what I envision, how we can take this. Yeah, definitely. So going through our jurisdictional history here in Kansas, I found it really interesting because in the early days, this was talked about nonstop pretty much every year. And the ground, the Grand Lodge was hounding lodges about turning in their history and keeping that history up to date. And I mean, you would see almost like punishing style letters sent out about your history is not up to date. And then over time that just kind of disappears to the point that we see today, we really don't have that history. A lot of book or a lot of lodges don't even have all their, their record books and stuff like that. Uh, kind of bridging that, that topic of, of do we need to get back to having a, a governance to require that? Obviously some lodges do it. Some lodges don't but we miss out on there. I like the the point that you raised about this fact grid though, about then it goes from just the, the action of getting it done. Cause then you, when you're on a larger scale, then you have this kind of universal format, um, which is a really interesting topic to bring into play. I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. So how uh, this- when Joe first contacted me about this, I don't remember how long ago now I was very excited at the, at the, just the, the basic idea of it. And then he shared some of, uh, the, the, the skeletal, uh, system of the process with me. And I, I was pretty blown away simultaneously. Uh, I, I had, I was contacted by a Mason from Austin who is working on a project that I could see down the, down the road somewhere, the two aligning, uh, it, are are y'all familiar with the, uh, the the concept in the uh, uh, high church uh, tradition of apostolic succession, uh, where it's it's kind of thought that uh, from the apostles down all the way to the present day, the laying on the hands has taken place, so that there has been a a direct uh, traceable to some degree uh, succession of people leading this tradition. Well. Uh, this this brother out of Austin kind of had a similar idea in mind, a Masonic succession. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what, what he's been trying to build is a, is a database that could reliably trace either who raised you or who conferred your degrees on you uh, and who conferred the degrees on him and on him and on him uh, or who taught you your work and who taught him his work and so on and so forth until uh, if, if you were able to, to build it, uh, reasonably well, uh, how cool would it be for, you know, uh, all of us, uh, Joe has mentioned it and I know Alex, uh, shares the family background to masonry as do I, uh, how cool would it be if, if we could look at who taught our great, great grandfather his work? Oh, and look, uh, he shares a, uh, uh, masonic lineage of learning the ritual with ben franklin and here's how and here are the guys that connect to him or <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff uh and and uh and, and so uh starting with the lodge genealogy like joe's doing i think makes the most sense but there's so many directions it could go in after mm-hmm. that 
Um, wouldn't, wouldn't that be cool in that in that atmosphere there if we got something like ancestry dna that was linked into freemasonry like this and you get that pop-up of ding you've got a new match within <laughs> within your masonic history <laughs> yeah well well i think that's kind of what joe's system uh for for the the masonic genealogy looks like the way that i've seen it and and he mentioned here just now uh, caribbean uh research and some german and elsewhere you would basically be able to look at your tree or get those kinds of uh, updated connection uh, notifications of, oh, look, you and uh, the Lodge of the Seven Sisters share this or so on and so forth. Like So cool. You guys I wish we could my, have that now. Like if you guys go and play with it on my Facebook page, I've got links to some of those different fat grid articles, especially the one on the strict observance, like go play with all the little hyperlinks. I know they're annoying and like, you got to click on them and stuff, but like do click on them because like, we've got neat things like where, and the cool thing about this metadata though, is what we had to do basically is we taught like a Wikipedia type engine, Freemasonry, right? And so you have to build all these hierarchical levels. You have to build degree systems. You have to name bodies, lodges, grand lodge bodies, subordinate bodies. And then now I've got like into these like little weird ones, like in, in like in the Caribbean, where like it's Marin's first little system. Right. And so he does like in 64, like all the way up to like the council of the princes of Jerusalem. So like what he set up in St. Mark, Port-au-Prince and uh, down in Lacay, he built this system where it's got a symbolic lodge. It's got a lodge of the elect, a, uh, a Nekose lodge or the, the lodge of perfection. Right. But it, but called the grand elect or Lou Parfait or however you want to look at it. Then he had another one that was the Knights of the East. Then he had Princes of Jerusalem. And so the original Princes of Jerusalem system, as it was here in the U.S., it turns out, and this is by using Fat Grid. I found all this cool stuff out just by looking at it and looking at records, um, that he actually, the precursor to that stuff, existed in San Domingue before he was basically kind of drummed out of the place. But the weird thing was, is he loses his powers in 66 and runs all the way to 1770, and these lodges won't let up. They just keep going, and finally it takes him dying before they, they go into the fold of the Grand Orient. And in one case, or sorry, two cases, they end up uh, doing like Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania. And so they're like, okay, enough of your modern systems. We're going ancients. That's it. We're done. <laughs> That's so, fantastic. Like, all these cool stories and like little things like that. I never in a million years would have figured this stuff out had I not started doing like this, like genealogical approach. And it all begins with the metadata, right? Like um, if you don't have the metadata, you can't understand any of this stuff. And that's what the cool thing is that I've, and I built it for Texas, right? So any Texas Mason that wants to jump on board, I am me right now or any other Mason in a different Grand Lodge jurisdiction. If you want to get cracking, I'll show you exactly what I did. And it really doesn't take much effort. It doesn't because the cool thing is all these like little different lodge entries. If you can get it in a list, I can put it in a spreadsheet. And if I can put it in a spreadsheet, I can make it a CSV file. And if I can make it a CSV file, I can take my batch import scripts and literally paste it on the tail of it. And that's it. And we're done. I mean, <laughs> and and we have the metadata for an entire system. And so, and it can be as broad or as detailed as you want it to be. But if we do these things, then that way, when we're working, like, say, like, we're, like, working in some lodge down in San Marcos, and we're, we're trying to get their records scanned in, brother, we can go through all that. And if we want to take it a step further, we can even host the images of the stuff on the page. And if we want to go a step further than that, we want actual transcriptions of these pages. There's a page for that too. And so it can be as, 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 as big or small of a project as you want it to be, but we got to have the metadata. 
And brother, that uh, that link that you shared in our in our chat group is is that kind of what you're getting to? I'm sharing that out right now to the different yeah. platforms. So yeah. uh, if you guys see that link pop up, you can definitely click on that and go check out uh, a little bit of what Brother Wages is talking about here and getting involved with that. Because yeah, that I mean that is huge. If we're able to secure that 100, that's that's a game changer for mm-hmm. at least guys like us that dig this stuff and really want to dive in and, and make those links. But you think about it moving years ahead of now, if, if we don't start taking actions like this, it's going to be too late. You know, well, it, like I could just one, one, like one more piece to it too. Like, um, like I'm working in the Caribbean, right. in San Domingue. So basically mm-hmm. like after like the, after the slave revolt and they did away with all the white people, um, all their historical records are lost, but they're not lost. Like you can actually rebuild the uh, databases from like French records. And so what I've done now is I've, I've rebuilt and I've got uh, 20,000 different people, 8,000 of them were landowners in 1789. And it's got all their details and that kind of stuff. So I repopulated like the historical Island of people and now doing all these cross referencing. I mean, basically like if you were in the military or you were a landowner some or some kind of way connected, you were a Freemason. It's like the most Freemasonic place you've ever seen. And then so when I was going through all these different records, um, like the one thing is like if you have a data set to work from, right? Like there's already a list of members. Like if I go to bring in new people, I have to check through each one to make sure they don't exist. To, so I'm not making duplicates. But once those are sorted right. out, you have to go like lodge by lodge level. Like for instance, Pierre Lambert de Linteau of England, right? Turns out he was a member of Marin's Lodge down in Lacay, and nobody figured it out until I started going through this stuff. And I'm not smarter or better than any one person. I've just got a really good system. And the cool thing is you can do it too. <laughs> All right. So uh, I appreciate the humility, but I have to point out that uh, he is being humble. The fact is that uh, whoever you are out there, Brother Wages is smarter than you. Uh, I, I can vouch for that. Uh, I, I, I wanted to point out, you, you, you just reminded me of something I hadn't thought of in a while, but before COVID, uh, the last um, uh, state convention of the uh, Texas historians that I was at, uh, I, I had lunch with, uh, uh, he's, he's becoming a, a quite well-known historian uh, named Resendez, uh, who, who focuses on borderlands history, uh, the history of slavery in the borderlands and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, because of a reference here and there, he had dug into uh, Freemasonry in Texas or Freemasons in Texas prior to the Texas uh, Revolution. And uh, the number he had come up with at that point, I need to reach out to him to get an update, but it sounded like he was more or less doing a similar thing as you've done uh, in Haiti. And uh, the number he'd come up with was something like 65 to 75% of Mexican landowners in Texas before yep. the revolution, before the Austin colony. Yeah, uh, we're already Masons, uh, which I mean, that that's potentially uh, paradigm shifting for the history of Freemasons in Texas uh, and, and just the same kind of way you're doing with Haiti and the way you're doing with all of this project. There's no telling what kinds of things we'll learn about Freemason individuals mm-hmm. and, and entire regions of areas in the context of Freemasonry uh, as you continue doing this. Now, you, you mentioned uh, a while ago uh, that. Uh, you you weren't sure are there laws uh, uh, suggesting or laws against I don't remember how you worded it uh, and that that really is an interesting sub sub subject uh, on on this which is gets to the title of the episode uh, I know at uh, until somewhat recently uh, it was interpreted here in uh, one of the grand lodges 
Grand Lodges of Texas, that lodges were disallowed from digitizing things like minutes and archives. Uh, really? I, uh, I can, I, I can unofficially officially say that some lodges uh, that I may or may not have anything to do with were already doing it anyway, but... Uh, <laughs> And so, uh, but that was an interpretation, and I think it actually changed uh, based on a recent vote. Uh, uh, Now, at the same time, the other Grand Lodge in Texas, the uh, Prince Hall Grand Lodge in Texas, uh, they actually have maintained a pretty steady expectation that lodges keep their archives and history with the Grand Lodge, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. which uh, is is thought to have uh, helped preservation of that those archives uh but i'm not sure how much uh uh, that collection has been curated in in this manner uh so uh uh there's a case of in one region uh grand lodge is having very different approaches to this question and neither one of them actually uh producing the kind of fruits that you're talking about doing by, by actively pursuing this. Uh, and I'm sure we would see even more disparity at, at looking across the country with different laws or the lack of laws on, on this kind of stuff. It, it, so, it's something to consider because we don't want to run afoul of our Masonic jurisdictions. On the other yeah. hand, though, it may be a case where I'd rather say I'm sorry than ask for permission, right? Because on the same, I mean, if you, and this is one of those things too, like that, like only a total rule follower and a dweeb would run around and try to uh, go and ask for permission, like to take a step or to go to the bathroom or to tie his shoes or to put on his pants. I mean, come on. <laughs> are we men? I mean, we, we're what we call ourselves Freemasons. Are we free or what are we doing here? And so that is that kind of thinking, right? Like, so we're not trying to, to hurt anyone's feelings. We're not posting this junk up, right? Board, right? The, what I'm talking about doing is like uh, the work I'm doing, it's defunct systems for people that have been dead for 200 plus years. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And just for the same reason, except for us, this information, it's not important to a lot of people. It's important to us, right? And we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our brethren. We owe it to our posterity to preserve these things. And so, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not being flippant about it, but on the other hand, like that, just, just dig in, right? Like, even if you like take all the pictures of every last record, I mean, brother Robert, like when we go through a book, what does it take at the most 30 minutes to go through the digital camera? If you do recto verso on the same page, Maybe I don't know. I use, I, I use a seizure canner scanner. Yeah. So it takes five minutes, but <laughs> exactly. And this is what, this is what I'm saying. Like we, we there, we've got solutions to do all this stuff. And even if we just keep it locally for ourselves, all we need is that metadata anyways. Like, so you don't really even need to post images of your records. Keep them for yourself. So, like, you're telling me, like, publicly sourced information that we can grab off the internet of the lodge names when it was founded. And it's been reprinted in transactions a million times over. This data is already in the public domain. We don't need to ask permission for this data. We just need to enter it. That's it. Well, I mean, and, really, and there's there's easy. an angle of that that's really worth pointing out, too. Uh, and it's it's simply that we, we are taught and we repeat and in some jurisdictions even memorize this this principle or concept of preserving the archives in masonry being an essential uh, mission of mm-hmm. what we do at, at our core. Right. We talk about that in uh, studies of the pillars and their roles uh, either symbolically or, or, or literally. Uh, and uh, that's, I mean, when you really, if you b- boil it down, that's what you're talking about doing is preserving the archives of masonry against uh, either literal or, or metaphorical conflagrations and inundations. 
So any argument that would try to say that we shouldn't do what you're talking about uh, flies directly in the face of that tradition. Uh, yeah. Clearly, the Masonic authors would be in favor of doing this. Well, like t- t- take Plano Lodge, for example, my mother lodge, right? Um, we've got several historically inclined brethren in that lodge, and they went to the trouble to go through everything in there. And one of the cool things that we have is we used to be Plano Lodge 235, but and they were chartered like in 1855. And then somewhere in the 1880s, one brother was running for a political office against another brother. And when that brother won the political office, he condemned the property of the other brother, which caused a rift in the lodge and killed Plano 235. And that was that. (laughs) But instead of turning over all the records to the Grand Lodge, they kept one minute book. And it was kept by the founder of the lodge, Dr. James Wilson. And he would go around town. And uh, there are several different places. And he even founded uh, East Trinity Lodge 157 out in Rockwell. Uh, back when Rockwall was part uh, part of Kaufman County, this is all small stuff. But in any case, like Dr. James Wilson, he he uh, holds on to this book, and several years later, when uh, Plano Seven Sixty Eight is chartered, he takes the last minute book of two thirty five and picks up on the right on the next line down, and Seven Sixty Eight begins where two thirty five ended, and it was. <laughs> It's freaking awesome, right? But had they turned that book over, we'd never know that story. It had got thrown in a vault somewhere in the Grand Lodge, and who knows what kind of shape it'd be in. And the cool, but one of the things is too, though, um, we've got all that stuff digitized for our lodge. We're not posting it out for anything, but if anyone wants to look into the history of it, it's there, and nobody has to take anything out of the vault or anything like that. It just stays right. in there. And that, that's, that's the main point I wanted to bring up, too. Digitizing this stuff, not only is it just cool for us to have and, like, to geek out over, like, to look at our computers and stuff, it's a research tool. But more importantly, you're preserving these documents for posterity because the more you handle these things, it doesn't matter what protocols you put into place, you destroy them, right? Some of that, like, uh, early, like, 20th century paper, like, I mean, that stuff's, like, so brittle and fragile. Oh, yeah. anyways, I feel guilty turning some of those pages because invariably – you cut, you tear them. It, it happens. There's no way around it. You can't do it. It doesn't matter how good you are. It happens, right? So that's why, especially that stuff. You know, funny enough, the 18th century stuff holds up better. Excuse me, than the modern stuff does. <laughs> yeah, it's true though. It's true though. And you know, that's something we've talked on historical light a bunch about. And when I got going in to do the book for my lodge, is exactly what got me on this this whole tangent of digitizing and preserving because those books in our lodge you would, you'd open a certain page and it was so brittle. It would just want to disintegrate. But then the all the, the other nice thing that I learned about it was sometimes because they're the old hand mixed inks, right? You know, one lodge meeting, it'll be so bright and brilliant. Two meetings later, they mixed it with water and you can just barely read it, but you scan it and oh my God, it comes to life. You can read it better digitally than you can in person. But then we came to this, you know, obviously archive when we had our grand archivist in kansas uh the big thing was get into acid-free boxes but a lot of our lodges like ours have these big fire safes they want to keep them in there okay so we got with some different archivists and we came up with the option of using uh air seal bags because they are also acid-free it makes them actually more firm and sturdy protects them from the water and all that good stuff but the lovely thing about that is now that you just said it, you've got that digital copy. If you need to, it's all accessible there. The nice thing is if you ever have to access that physical copy, cut it open, it's fine, it's there, but it limits how many times that cover is is ever open. So you're not only preserving that data for foreseeable ever, mm-hmm. but you're also making that physical copy last as long as it possibly can, which 
is just, you know, it, it's, it's the two, it's that double-edged sword of the mission that us historians are after. And if you guys want to do it too, I've got some really cool scripts for Photoshop. So like, if you want to take those old documents and depending yes. on what they are, you can enhance all that stuff too. And like, just make it really pop. And if you got something that's really important, send it to brother Steve Adams, he'll fix it. Like, and we, 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 what's cool is too, is we've got like an AI for that stuff too, where it can take things that are even like old uh, stuff, like at, at lower resolutions and like using an AI, it fixes it. And like, we, so what we did is we did a test. We took like a thing that was in the Hague versus like a low res scan of it, like that we pulled out of a PDF. It is sickly close. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, so there's, there's options. So like, even if you have something that like, and you, you don't have a higher resolution option, we can fix it. And that's the cool thing about it is like, so what I'm saying is we have all these tools that are unlimited at our disposal. All we have to do is care and dare to dream and dare to take that first step. Because once you take that first step, unfortunately, it's like Masonic crack cocaine, right? Like you're going to be hooked. And that's, <laughs> that's all there is to it. <laughs> it's so true, man. You know, I, I'm with Robert here. I've got totally bought into the Caesar brand. We've got multiple of their cameras for the Kansas Lodge research. I've got one personally totally in love with them. But the fact is just get started. When I, when I first started this, I started doing it with an old Android cell phone and I rigged up a box a certain way and a light and I was going page by page and it was a little tedious, you know, naming the files, but it's that simple. It's click, it's turn, it's click, it's turn. If you can get into something like a Caesar, which I think a lot of people, a lot of lodges would really be surprised just how obtainable this technology is these days it's not that bad. I mean, like the shine ultras, which I've tested out and really like, I, I like the, the, uh, what do I got the ET 18 or whatever. I definitely prefer it better. I, I use it, but the shine ultra for being lightweight and portable, it's got just as good resolution. It works just as fast as the software. And it was like 150 bucks, something like that software included. Like, where this stuff is these days is uh, it's it's ridiculous. You know, when we when we first started this process back 2016, 2017 at our lodge, um, we moved to buy a book scanner, just a you know, cheap USB book scanner off of Amazon. I think we paid like 350 bucks. It took the pictures. The big reason we bought it is it, it claimed this OCR capability and uh, it never even opened. It just sat there and spun. And then you messaged the company and we got this, you know, broken English reply of our OCR, OCR not work so good. I'm like, so sorry. <laughs> that's, that's what you claim. That's the whole reason we bought it. But Caesar, that, that's the one reason I love them is it just works. The quality is there. The, the, uh, the equipment just works without glitch and the OCR is amazing. I've even had fairly good luck on, uh, on cursive writing, which is just blows my mind away. And then I think it's only going to get better as time goes on. That's what I was just going to say next. There's we've, we've got like, and so it's one thing I've been working on, like as a side deal, um, all the different like handwriting styles like that, all these OCRs are trainable. There's now a program that's out there called Transcribus and it's on, it's German. Like, so it's uh, T-R-A-N-S-K-R-I-B-U-S uh, dot D-E and you can go there. Now you have to pay for it, but what it can do is it can take uh, different like old handwritings, right? And so you have to train it, right? So like you have to draw, like you have to draw the baseline of the text, right? So if their handwriting slopes up, you better follow it up because it's not going to read it, right? And, but what it'll do is it'll grab characters. It'll automatically identify you train it based on what these characters are. 
it's pretty dang sick. Like George Close, like from like any, so in that old like current curse from the 18th or really the 18th century, but it would ran all the way up until like the early, like uh, 20th century before they changed it. And then the Germans really changed it. And then it went to something better. But <laughs> anyway, so he, 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 uh, he, he, his handwriting is terrible, right? It's this tiny tight little handwriting and that current cursive. It can like, it's like 85% accurate on this like guy's crazy sloppy handwriting and that's what I'm trying wow. to say is we're getting to a point now where technology is catching up. And so um, like even OCR options, right? Like not all of them are good. And really it has to do a lot with the image on that. But those are problems for another day. Step one, get the images. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think now, you've definitely given us our next missing, uh, mission with Kansas Lab <laughs> Research because our big goal right now has just been to get these Caesar machines out to lodges and capture mm-hmm. this the the image, the data, right? Um, but we haven't started into the metadata phase. So that's definitely going to be on the radar. We're going to have to start a committee for that because I love where you're going with it. This type of database that can capture all that uh, is 100% the future. Right. And like, so we're building it for lodges in the past. Texas has already accomplished, but the cool thing is me and Robert at some point we'll get through it. And if anybody else wants to jump in, shoot me a message, let's do it. Okay. Because like we've got little tasks, we got to break out. Like step one is all the lodges that are active. We don't know when they're founded. We do know when they're founded, but the data is not in the data set. Right. So we got to fill that data in. Then we don't know uh, geographical locations for the demise lodges. A lot of them are ghost towns, right? We got to fill that stuff in. And what we need is longitude and latitude. And the cool thing is Google gives you all this stuff. It just, all you have to do is right. just clear for five minutes or like, say you want to get a six pack of beer and you want to start at five o'clock and not quit till one o'clock in the morning, do it. You can get this done and you can rip through this thing. And that's what I'm trying to say is like, it like my work that I do, right? Like I work like a full-time job. I've got five kids and like, but what happens is, is like they go to bed at 10 and I work till two or three every night and I don't stop and I don't take days off and I get up and do it all over again. And I'm probably crazy. Right. But the same thing is, is like, there's always like, there's a couple hours every day (laughs) that you can, you can slip in to do something if you're passionate about it. Right. And like, it's not going to make any of us any any, any money. We don't care about this stuff. As far as money goes, we care about the history of the lodges and all these records and preserving history. And that's why we're here. (laughs) That's right. It turns into a really nerdy obsession. Yes, it does. (laughs) And your wife hates you for it, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. It it can reap enormous rewards for, for a lodge, right? You know, I, I can tell you at mine, uh, like you guys, I started with rudimentary equipment and processes uh, before we had what's available now. And I had Android, like uh, Alex mentioned, using. And it, it was 2009, 2010. Uh, and, uh, but, I mean, I, I started with that and got to work on it. And I've got 300 biographies on the Lodge website now based on that, that data I was able to pull. Uh, and so we've had, you know, relationships built with, area museums and historic associations and descendants of pioneers of the community and all kinds of people who had their own kinds of resources that uh, uh, benefit the lodge and connecting with. Uh, and it never would have happened if, if we didn't uh, preserve and curate what's, what's in the archives and, and figure out what's there and what we can make of it and, and what kind of connections there are to make out of it. Uh, what you're doing with your database 
is going to do that on an enormous scale. Kansas mm-hmm. uh, Lodge of Research, as Alex said, has been doing that with several lodges across the state and jurisdiction of Kansas. I don't care who you are, you cannot fathom the potential of being able to collectively analyze all of the archives that are in Masonic lodges. Uh, uh, Brother Wages said it earlier that there's stuff in our storage that we don't even know about. Mm-hmm. Oh, always. But if we yeah. did, you know, where do you think uh, I go shopping? <laughs> if you follow Kansas Lodge of Research, you saw the uh, the documents signed by Benjamin Franklin that were right there yeah. in the Kansas Masonic uh, uh, archives that weren't known about. That's in Kansas. So imagine yeah, where, where Joe's going with up. Haiti or East Coast or Germany, and you start reaching back three, four hundred years, and they were collecting things three or hundred, four years ago, which means they'll have stuff from five, six, seven hundred years ago that they were getting then. Uh, there's, there is no telling what will be learned from doing stuff like this. Uh, now, we've talked about how it could be good for there to be Grand Lodge laws uh, uh, on programs like this, but I, I wonder uh, for w- what kind of cons there could be, you think. You know, I, I can tell you just generally, I'm always little a little leery, uh, and maybe it's for like PTSD from being a Texas Mason, but anytime Grand Lodges are going to implement laws, uh, and, and for those who, who aren't Texas Masons, all you have to do is see the size of our law book to know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. It's it's a running joke uh, with Masons when I travel across the country of, uh, is, is y'all's law book really the size of your Bible? And I'm like, yeah, it really is. Uh it's not that small. <laughs> uh, you know, very there, there's always <laughs> some potential danger in the Grand Lodge, uh, any Grand Lodge, adding new laws or acquiring something. I will say I'm having trouble imagining what kind of dangers there would be in a Grand Lodge having laws about preserving archives, but maybe there's something there that could go wrong. Uh, probably just public dissemination, right? Like, so as long as like your digital records, your digital records, you're free to share them with other brothers because, well, guess what? We're all brothers, right? That'll be just fine. But as long as you're not like posting them up on like, um, I don't know where you'd put them, maybe even Dropbox is an appropriate place to keep them, right? Because unless you have the other link to it, you can keep, like, I mean, honestly, like you can share a whole lot of stuff through Dropbox and not oh, yeah. with the whole world that way. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. I, I've got several Dropbox accounts that are totally full. Um, full of junk, right? Like, and that's what I'm trying to say is like, there's, there's all sorts of cool solutions for this stuff. But as far as like laws, main thing is just stay like a hundred years and back, right? Like if, if you go to the level of like doing members for a lodge, just do like a hundred years back, it'd be a good idea. And if you can, if you can get that data, like if you like, once we get the metadata in there and we start putting in like individual lodges and records and like, say like, uh, I want to know who was a member in Plano Lodge uh, 768, 1935. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll look at the books. We'll put all the people in there. Um, but the cool thing is like, if we do it and we add all these people in there, we can literally show the membership change over time because it animates through time. Right. And that's, what's really about this stuff. Like I take, for instance, 
like strict observance of the Illuminati, right? Like we took all the like known members, right? So we took like, you know, 1500 in one set and 1600 in another, and we were able to build like their, their member age profiles. And that's one of the things that Olaf didn't predict is that there was a profile to it. I said, no, I promise you there's a distribution for sure. And sure enough, there's a distribution of age profile. And what we saw was the Illuminati were focused on younger guys. So they're sorry, I guess that's this way. The, they're this way on the curve. And then as you get older in the strict observance, it's more older Mason. So all it does is the curve shifts over and it's the same kind of distribution curve. And it's, it's, it's beautiful to see that. I'd like to see what the distribution for today's lodges look like and what we could literally do is like, what is the distribution for Plano Lodge in 1984, 1983, 82, 81, 79, right. and go all the way back in time. And what we can do is we can see the demographic wave shift through, maybe grow bigger, maybe get smaller. And we can start looking at this stuff and really get a good sense of what's going on. And not that it affects the future, right? But just to know where we were in the past. And that, that's what the beauty of all this kind of data is you can actually like you can open the doors of the past. You can see things that you can't see evident on records just by looking at the the big picture. And when you know the big picture, you can go look for the pieces in the small picture. That, yeah. that, that's how I, make such, I mean, seriously, that's how I make such big discoveries is I start at the macro and I get to the micro and that's all I do. Yeah. Something yeah. I'd be excited about. I know when, when researching my lodges history early on, I was, I was, excited and, and interested in tracing oh this guy came from here this guy came from there one of our charter members came from austria you know stuff like that and and it i didn't realize it then at that time i was just interested in it because oh that's cool he came from austria but over time and as i've grown and, and developed as a mason that has uh come with new implications of oh he it's not just cool that he came from austria you have to consider his masonry came from Austria, mm -hmm. and 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 if, if, if early yeah. enough in a in a jurisdiction, uh, what I'm starting to see in in my research here in Texas is that that often also means that that jurisdiction's version of masonry uh, mm -hmm. uh, adopted some of the flavor of the craft from all of the places that its early members came from, and if you inevitably with what what you're doing and and what we're hoping more and more. Uh, uh, Masons will get on board with doing in their areas, uh, will be able to, on a mathematical, with mathematical precision, trace not just the, the organizational genealogy of Masonry, but the ritualistic and, and uh, personality genealogy of Masonry <laughs> and, and realize, oh, well, this, the, the deacons don't use the rods here, here, and here. And sure enough, you can trace these guys came from there and those from there. Uh, yeah. uh, elements like festive boards or uh, prohibition, on the other hand, and, and those kinds of influences, you'd be able to trace just about anything. Uh, yeah. Particular phrases in the ritual and stuff like that. Obviously, we're not going to be putting that into no, digitization, no, but, but we know it. <laughs> We, we, study it. <laughs> we already have to learn it and study it. So all we would have to do is, is consult a database like you're building and see the facts of that. And then on our own, put that into connection with the ritualistic uh, genealogy that we, we can figure out. Uh, enormous implications. Right. Uh, and, and, I, and I've seen I, I know you've written about it in some of your work. Uh, and I'm sure Alex has seen it in Kansas that sometimes there are misconceptions. Uh, I can tell you directly here because we got uh, Texas got its first 
charters or some of its first charters from uh, the Grand Lodge of Louisiana, there's a common misconception that Texas style masonry uh, was based on Louisiana style masonry. And all too often, it's just not the case (laughs) that the organizational genealogy is that much impacted uh, in terms of its ritual genealogy. Uh, However, you can identify characteristics in Texas ritual that align with individual members Masonic genealogy sure. in the early days and uh, a, a database like this would make doing stuff like that so much easier and more precise. That's that's like what up. So all the books that I'm going to be putting out. So I'm going to go a step further. So like all the different things that I'm doing, like all my primary sources, all the stuff that I spent all that time transcribing and translating that stuff. As soon as the books in print, it goes into fat grid. So now like we're building that's real cool. systems. And so like, um, for the eclectic right, right? Like it was really built on the bones of the 1781 Illuminati ritual. That was the vehicle, how they hijacked and took over lodges. Nobody realizes that yet. And then there was a reform that came later after it. But when you put all these things together, it's not just enough to have the metadata. You need to be able to actually see it, right? And so one of the cool things is by having these transcripts that I'm going to throw in there as well, like you can literally like lay it side by side. <laughs> and so it can be, it can it's it's a it's a really awesome tool and I, I can't encourage you guys enough to just like step one build the metadata step two conquer the galaxy right <laughs> definitely there, there's so much value there you know i'm sitting here thinking about robert's comment about you know kind of different styles of masonry coming from different places and it's kind of a beautiful thing to think about we we just renovated our lodge hall and me and my wife were up there the other night doing some wiring on the lights. Well, I was, she was talking to me and we had that thought of, man, think about all the other brothers throughout the years. You know, we we were so caught up on just seeing their pictures and their, their dad in the books, but think about the brothers that are actually in this room, wiring up the last lights and doing the pain, like the brothers that have been in here, like doing that labor. When you think about how like the different little pieces and nuances of our ritual came through, it's so true. Like you can see that in a real life perspective of thinking even today, you get a brother that comes to your lodge from another lodge and say that lodge does things just a little bit differently. They're strict on this. They're, they're more, you know, precise on their corners or something like that. They come to your lodge. That's not the way we did it. And they, they bring that personality. You can totally see that happening historically. You know, this brother comes and yeah, we love the way he does this and he's very, very firm on it. Of course, it's going to stick. And of course, that's going to impact history and move forward. Um, let's see. Kind of two there's other funny ways. I was there, to touch there, on there's here. some funny ways yeah. that, that develops too. Uh, uh, Daniel Gardner out of Montana, he was sharing mm-hmm. some with me a while back where he was uh digging in he, he he's probably talked to you guys about it too he was digging into some of the the moderns and ancients uh rivalry in the late 1700s yeah and uh he he specifically identified some moments where uh, uh for example uh, uh I'll, I'll, I'll describe it uh, hypothetically but he had specific examples uh where say you are an ancient and the late 1700s and you want to do something to get the moderns well what you might do is print an exposure of how you're doing things in your lodge uh and you would plant things in it that aren't real uh and then you would visit as a visiting brother uh the the rival lodge uh even if you're uh uh, under the same umbrella you get what i'm saying uh you you'd visit the rival lodge and if they are now doing 
the made up stuff that you put in the exposure, you have proved that they are looking at your stuff to figure out how to do masonry. Uh, and, and, uh, what he was showing was some of that stuff happened and it stuck. <laughs> and, and yeah. 200 plus years later, some of our jurisdictions are still performing ritual based on pranks that were played, uh, across rival factions in masonry in the 18th century. <laughs> Uh, so that's another, that's a fun way that, that aligning this data will allow us to see some of the, uh, uh, nuance, uh, that was happening across different flavors of masonry back in the day. And, and some of that stuff is just so stuck in time, even though maybe it's changed or the, you know, laws or rules around it have changed. People just get so stuck in their ways. I think it was Patrick Craddock that was sharing with me about uh, tie designs. You know, he'd gone over somewhere in Europe and it was like this tradition that everybody wore a black tie. And one of these past grandmasters was wearing like a gold tie or something. He's just, you know, that orange hill or orange bill black hat just sticking out like a, you know, sore thumb. And he had that conversation with him and past grandmaster was so upset about it. He goes, it was like 60 years ago, some guy died and they decided to wear a black tie and it just never stopped. <laughs> and it just, it just sticks like that. And it's funny to see, but sure enough, like you do see that stuff. You know, one, one thing I wanted to bring up in, in a sight of Grand Lodge is kind of putting this out there. One thing our Grand Lodge has done uh, since we've, you know, moved away from having our building and our, you know, our physical Kansas Lodge research is obviously trying to digitize everything, but on the Grand Lodge front, they went ahead and they digitized all of the, uh, the proceedings books and they are all public except for the last few years or last few books that include people that are alive. Those are still accessible is the one thing I wanted to point out there is any members in Kansas can log into the website and they are accessible there all the rest of the versions are accessible to public. So that's, that's another option. There's, we can, we can still do this work and get ahead of it and maybe limit the access of who gets on it. Because if we don't do it, then we're, you know, obviously depending on the future and kind of, you know, shooting ourselves in a foot to that degree. If we, we, not we had this conversation a long time ago, we had a uh, uh, Dylan on the show who was acting as our grand archivist in Kansas and, one of the biggest complaints uh, that came through is that our Grand Lodge kind of failed in the past. And the aspect of when he came in as, as the archivist, they were finding old charters, original charters, you know, shoved in a roll top desk to the point that they were taking damage because they were just shoved and crammed in there. They had history in different points of the basement. You have to understand that the task of archiving has changed. And now it's our responsibility because they didn't have the ability for this metadata and digitizing back in the day. In those days, the task of archiving was to get it, to physically get it, to save it, right? And that's what Grand Lodges did. And over a long period of time, it just became more and more and more. At one point in time, they knew they had those signatures of Ben Franklin here in Kansas, but as people come in and out of those offices and you're at a physical keeping standpoint, it's really hard to say, hey, we got this, 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 and this. Now we're at that point of being able to take it to that next generation. That's a task that is on us to update this now to the best of mm -hmm. our current abilities, bringing in these databases, bringing in these aspects of mm -hmm. metadata that is going to be able to be searchable. 
that's on us. And the beauty is we're going to rediscover so much stuff that has already been discovered, but has been forgotten about, possibly lost. And uh, it's, it's kind of a whole new horizon there. So it's very, very exciting times, but it still doesn't, you know, forget the fact that it is very much on us and there is definitely work to be done. Getting close to toasting time. It is. May I make one last selfless plug, though? Go for it. This last selfless plug is brought to you in part by, uh, I've got an idea, and it's you're going to read about it here, I guess, whenever they send out the new uh, plumb line. So I did a big article in Heritum, and it's on uh, DeGrasse TE and the early Supreme Council. And there's like really explosive stuff that's going to be in this one. But one of the cool things that's in it is I found the minute books for La Candour, which was a 1796 Charleston Lodge. And basically, what you learn about in there is that after all the early Grand Lodge buildings burned in a fire, they all met in La Candour's building. That was how their connection all started in the first place. And if it wasn't for that fateful thing, we never would have got the ancient accepted Scottish rite because the French guys never would have gone overseas and propagated and everything else like that. But what's cool is it records the attendance of Hyman Isaac Long, and uh, he's the guy that gave the uh, minute book, or not minute book, the uh, ritual books to DeGrasse T.E., which in the, the the ritual books for the uh, Charleston body it, were, were gone, right? So <laughs> it restored the rituals basically, and the French brothers had it. And so, like, there, it, it's where I'm going with this is those minute books. They were used to be in a good shape. There was a transcript and translation made of it in the 50s. Um, it must have been in much better shape because these documents are in really really sad shape right now. And so we're and it's it's money that we're going to pay to get these restored. The lodge is still going to own the books. We're just paying that we're just trying to foot the bill. So we're collecting money. Um, it, it, it's going to be for saving La Candor, and you can read about it in the plumb line. And there'll be specific instructions on how to carry these things out that are beyond me. I just know that it needs to be fixed, and that's the plan. So if you guys would consider making a donation to saving La Candor, we're saving uh, these three minute books that are from 1796 to 1798. So cool stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. And brother, uh, if you don't mind, after this, get me a link for that, and we'll make sure that it gets in the show notes and everything. And uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Well, we are at the hour of nine o'clock here. Brothers, what are you toasting with this evening? Well, Looking it's just a little bit of polliner hefeweizen. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I've got a new glass that was given to me at the uh, the Detroit Masonic Convocation a couple weeks ago with nice. the logo from the Detroit Masonic mm. Library on it there. And in the glass, I have uh, a whiskey that was given to me by uh, Brother James Ermoyan up in Bozeman, uh, Montana. And uh, it's actually pretty interesting. This is uh, Devil's Brigade whiskey. Uh, and uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, I'll, I'll just, uh, I guess, briefly say uh, that uh, a group of woodsmen and uh, 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 rough and rowdy Montanians and ca- uh, Canadians uh, got together in World War II to form what became known as the Devil's Brigade, adopted the motto, Das Dicke in der Kontnok, uh, the worst is yet to come and uh, went on a Nazi-killing campaign uh, with a great deal of success. And uh, there's some really interesting stuff out there about those guys. Uh, And uh, this stuff is made in commemoration of them, uh, and uh, it's delicious. So that's what I'm toasting with. 
Fantastic. I am working through just the last few sips of uh, my bottle of Pendleton. So we're going to have to re-up on something new here very soon. And uh, what we got here, we got an old uh, 2019 Leadership Academy toasting cannon. So Brother Wages, I, I want to thank you so much. And we're, we're still going to hit final comments here in a minute, but uh, we thank you for coming on and wanted to see if you would uh, be kind enough to offer a, a toast for us this evening. All righty then, brethren. Uh, so with my magical, this is the uh, beer stein. When you're a seasoned veteran at Bavarian Grill, they uh, they give you one of these. It's a really that's good mug. And if you if you know what it's supposed to look like, that's a really dark blue. But when you're a seasoned veteran, it turns into a very nice light blue. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. This is all to, to all our departed brethren. May their memories forever be in our heart. And let us always work and strive to burn and preserve the posterity of our fallen brethren who came before us. Here, here. Cheers. Fantastic. Well, I want to first off, thank you, everyone that has joined us live uh, this episode. I think it's been going really well for with the transition of taking historical light from recorded episodes to live. We've gotten killer uh, interaction with our with our audience members. And I love that aspect of it. So thank you, everyone joining us in for those conversations and keeping up with our shows. Um, Brother Joe, what do you have for final comments this evening about the topic that we've had? We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, so the main thing is is to dare to dream and to have the idea, right? So oh, yeah. we got we got it that's step one, right? Just even have the idea. Step two, contact your local Grand Lodge secretary. You want to ask for two things. The first thing is list of all active lodges, preferably with data of when the lodge was founded. I learned that the hard way. You have to fill that in if you don't have it. And for Texas, that's a really bad thing. <laughs> Two, ask for the demise lodges. Get those two files in. Uh, if it's an email, just send it to me. I'll help you format it, and we'll get it. Uh, we'll get it put up on Fat Grid so the metadata for your Grand Lodge exists. And if there's any weirdness, I can help you with that. And the main thing is, if we can just start populating this. Uh, and then, as far as like the pictures and stuff go, an idea that I think would be good, and it's certainly how certain lodges had their records digitized. When you have apprentices and fellow crafts, anyone who's not a master, if they're needing something to do, well, look, guess what? We need to take just one book. It'll take 15 minutes of your time. That's how you get it done. And so the best part is we already have the built-in labor for this already. We're not thinking creatively. I mean, <laughs> that's all we got to do. Just, just be creative. Don't ask for permission. Get out there and go and do it. Conquer the galaxy. And anyone can do it. <laughs> I love that. That's actually a fantastic idea. Fantastic. Uh, Brother Robert, what do you got for final thoughts? Oh, final thoughts. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, all right. So we've 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 spent a lot of time talking about uh, uh, some technical processes, uh, some some data building that we're wanting to do, uh, stuff that really gets uh, the juices flowing for the three of us and guys like us. Uh, but uh, uh, to kind of expand a little and get into uh, what. Uh, I think uh, many would say it would be juicier material while we've got him here. We've briefly tapped on Brother Wage's expertise on the actual Illuminati and its connections to Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. um, and we've also briefly uh, tapped uh, 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 Haiti uh, and uh, 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 Moran and, and those guys. Uh, so uh, for those who uh, uh, aren't uh, privy to any of this kind of stuff 
uh, uh, if you'd like to, uh, uh, Brother Wages, I think uh, it would be worth uh, uh, briefly hitting on the Illuminati, the film project you were in uh, regarding that, where that can be watched. Last I knew, uh, it, it was important to specifically access that through a particular avenue due to some... Uh, uh, production rights or something along those lines. Uh, and also uh, regarding Hades. So this is something I've been looking into recently. There's a there's a book that's a series of essays out about Freemasonry and the visual arts that touches on uh, Haitian uh, uh, voodoo traditions, which are, are, are drastically misunderstood and misunderappreciated or underappreciated mm-hmm. uh, as, as a as something worth studying as a tradition beyond just being a, a creepy zombie thing like it's often in pop culture uh, and its connections to Freemasonry and how Masonic uh, imagery pops up in the, the voodoo uh, uh, tradition. Uh, so so the Scottish Rite, which m- most Masons, if not all Masons, are at least somewhat familiar with, if not intimately familiar with, does have some sort of ties to uh, uh, the Caribbean, uh, of course, South Carolina, uh, the obvious uh, transatlantic trade that connected those areas. Uh, it, so if you could uh, uh, maybe hit on something to do with that that you've recently worked on with Haiti, other than just the data building uh, you're talking yeah. about, uh, but maybe something that might surprise Masons who wouldn't already know it. Okay, so uh, well, let's go with Illuminati. If you want to know what the rituals and ceremonies were and if you want to read what took us five years to put back together, uh, go get The Secret School of Wisdom. It's on Amazon. You can also get it from Lewis Masonic Direct. Um, same thing with the uh, – it's also in French too. You can get it from Dervi. And oddly enough, like we don't have it in German. Like that's, <laughs> that's what we started with. <laughs> <laughs> but we are going to get there. It's you know, just a little, little housekeeping first. Important languages first, native language last, right? <laughs> but uh, slacking. But as far as like the whole Caribbean stuff goes, it's it's really a bigger project that I'm working on. Um, so brother Art and I have like one that's coming out, and it's uh, it's it's the source ritual for the Franken manuscripts, right? And it's not one manuscript; it's two manuscripts. Um, one of them's already known, right? It's the Balo manuscript. Uh, we've gone through and we've translated it. Um, we can put it in uh, Franken's hands, right? Like his handwriting's in the book, but nobody bothered to look. <laughs> but little things like that, right? And then there's like also another uh, super secret thing that's going to go with it. But what it's going to do is it's going to fill in the blanks from 64 to 1771 Franken, right? Don't know what it could be, but it's going to fill in the blanks there. Um, more importantly, though, um, like we were talking about that metadata. So, um, like I mentioned before, like, and I got the idea on the book that's being published and will be available. Unfortunately, there's only a hundred copies on the first run, right? Small run on the first one. So it's a thing I did. Um, initially, it was supposed to be a partnership between the uh, Grand Collage Vie d'Ecossais of uh, France, but what ended up happening with our uh, research society never panned out. So it's just me and those guys. And what we did is we took all of the sharp documents, all of Chemitsky, all of the Grand Orient files of Marin and other sources. Um, and so, so far we're committed to two volumes. Um, and so basically it's every letter that ever existed ever that has any context ever to the Alu Parfait, the first version of the order of the Royal secret, then the order of the Royal secret itself, everything that we could possibly have like every source. And it's all, it's in the original French uh, translations into English, like good translations. Cause I know Latomia did it a while back. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
If for those of you who don't know, Brother Jerry Printon was a great man. He was Dutch. Uh, English wasn't his native language, nor was it French, and he translated from French to English. So you tell me how they turned out. Um, He's so a go-getter. We, we fixed those issues, but it was worthwhile because I pulled all the metadata out of it, right? Because I'm, right. I'm I did mechanical engineering for a lot of years, so I'm real systematic and formulaic. And so like using a lot of automated processes and a little bit of scripting, too, I was able to extract all that stuff out and start building metadata list, right? So I got that stuff, the San Domingue stuff, and now I'm going at a lodge-by-lodge lodge level every year for every record that ever exists and populating it, right? And we're getting – the results I'm getting out of this stuff like that, it's sick. Like it's <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I'm, real, I'm, I'm building like Grand Lodge libraries is what I'm doing for the past. And so it's really useful to my research because it's helping me find these people, but the cooler part is – is the interconnections, right? Like I'm looking at this Lodge Lacay down in uh, what's San Domingue, but I guess later it turns into Haiti. Um, and we're looking at this Lodge and you're like, huh, well, this guy, Martin de Berendog, how did he get in here? Oh, it's letters patent from Marin. And what I ended up finding out was, is that Marin's like main sphere of operation was Port-au-Prince. Martin Berendog was his deputy for Lacay. And then the other Lodge in his system from 63 to I guess 1770, but officially 1766 under his original authority uh, was also St. Mark. And so the guy for St. Mark was a guy named um, Bertrand Bertomio was the guy's name. And so he had these two deputies. Nobody even knew anything about this entire system that nobody knew anything about. And it was the cool thing was they got transplanted and used in the early order of the Royal secret stuff and like all mm -hmm. this information, but like Martin de Berendo, he goes down there and then, like, uh, it turns out he later owns this thing called the, uh, like, the, 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 the Simon Sugar Refinery in English is what it is. Well, one of the guys in the lodge is Simon, and you start doing a little bit of research. He marries the dude's daughter, right? So he's, like, Marin's pal who brings the system back into Lacay, a lodge he founded, you know, back in 1747. And so, but, but he's also, like, this guy's thing. And so, like, these little interrelationships that we're starting to figure out, like, and that's the cool thing about it. If you start looking at these lodges – whole generations of these people like are initiated in these lodges and you start seeing like there's like, it's a family thing that goes on. And so really there's like, there's a whole lot of family connections, a whole lot of uh, like uh, social connections. As far as like, if you're a planter, you're, you and all your planter friends are members of this lodge and you also rely on the military to keep you safe. Um, and so those guys are in the lodge too. And like little local civic leaders. So basically like if you're a well-to-do person at all, like anything more than moderately educated in the middle to upper classes of society. And those were some of your ancestors more likely than not from like the 18th century forward, you may have a Freemason or two in your family. You didn't know anything about. And the cool thing is as we build these records, not just for San Domingo, but for the whole world, and you can do it as big or as little as you want to, there's going to be all sorts of crazy discoveries. And like one of the things that we're seeing too is um, like with the German research too, like these people are not in insignificant or inconsequential people that are Freemasons. And so the question you, you, if you looked at it conspiratorial, you could say, Oh really? Well, tell me more about that French revolution. How'd that turn out? And that's <laughs> probably not the right answer. There's all sorts of forces, like, but you have to research history to understand this stuff. More importantly, though, what you start seeing, though, is like these people that are like well-to-do people, they're into things like being like a, a member of a club that's a, that committed to self-perfection, right? Like this, what you start seeing is, is like it's a, it's, it's a tie that binds and it's like a thing that shows the quality of the person and like who this person is, right? So that's, I don't know, it, it's just little things like that. And there's a million other things I can't even think of that you can take that data and you can, whether you're doing sociology, economics, history, politics, whatever you want to look at, 
this data is going to fill in so many blanks and it's going to really like change the way we look at it. And the cool thing was, is like what got us started on this is uh, Olaf and I, and also Reinhard, there's a guy named Niall Ferguson. Do you guys know who that is? So I know the name professor. He wrote the thing for the, uh, for the Rothschilds and the Kissinger and stuff like that. So he's a, he's a pretty out there uh, historian, like mainstream guy, but like he, you know, he works for big power players or whatever. And so he contacted us and he was wanting information like on like our work on the Illuminati. And he also wanted stuff on Freemasonry. And so we got to contribute. I contributed like to two chapters in his book, one on the Illuminati, one on Freemasonry. And the whole uh, thesis of this book called the square in the tower was, is that for too long historians paid attention, not enough necessarily, uh, or they paid too much attention to hierarchies and not so much to networks, right? Mm-hmm. And so what he was asking us for at the time was data like, hey, can we show this in a network information? If you guys look at this at all, we never touched it. And so it was him like reaching out to us when Fat Grid got built in 2018, right? And so that's it's, it's really like his idea came reality, right? So like this is what I'm trying to tell you is this, this is even our idea. This is Niall Ferguson's idea. He dreamed it. We got inspired by it. We built the groundwork for it. Now we've got researchers working in like countries all over Europe, even in the US and it's growing and it's spreading. And this is what I'm talking about. Like, and so like the, the history of future and we get to participating in it, in it. And the best part is we're on the cutting edge is open source history. This is what we're talking about. Open source history. That's fantastic, brother. Well, I want to thank you first and foremost for everything you've done for the craft, because literally since you've been dropping books and movies, and I mean, what I have learned has just exploded. And honestly, from already being at that history nerd standpoint, you've reignited my, you know, my passion for this stuff as well. Uh, You come at this with such a vigorous pace. It is just it's contagious and we need that. So thank you seriously for everything you do. Uh, Are you saying I'm the biggest Masonic crack dealer? (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) I I think we've come with a a couple wonderful quotes this evening. One being no matter who you are, Joe Wage is smarter than you by Rob Marshall. That's totally going to come out. (laughs) No. (laughs) And now we got Joseph. I I include myself in that collective. You. (laughs) Still alive. (laughs) Let's see. So final thoughts for me on this end, you know, this topic kind of came out of a Facebook discussion. Uh, Me and brother wages were kind of going back and forth and some, some great input was coming. Uh, They kind of brought this topic into being of, of should there be something here? And obviously I think we've established it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's, there's value to it. We've seen that value presented in the past, but at the same time, there's also disadvantages, especially with the rate of the world today and the different Grand Lodge uh, interpretations of laws and such. There, there, there could be a lot of downside there. Um, but one part I'm really getting in on is the source of this metadata and kind of a a common ground of what metadata we're looking for. And I would love to get in contact with you outside of this. Mm -hmm. I've been in a group discussion previously is, is I I run the lodge research here in Kansas. I've I've talked with uh, a group of brothers uh, leading other lodges of research and other jurisdictions. And there's been this discussion of like, quote unquote, a national lodge of research in certain degrees. That's been hard to, uh, hard gap to bridge because of, you know, certain policies of certain grand lodges and whatnot. 
but I think there would be huge value in coming together and maybe sharing some metadata or at least a common format Mm -hmm. so that when you're researching between these different resources, you have that common ground. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to get with you on that. I think we could, uh, we could really have some useful information come out of that. So brother, thank you so much. I hope we can get you on again in the future. I know there's so many topics we can go on with you. Um, But with that, everyone, thank you so much for joining in. Check us out over on the Historical Light Masonic Research Group on Facebook. And until next time, we'll see you right here. Stay good. Bye.